0: Hello and welcome to Washington Talks, a new series of podcasts produced by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute here in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Watson, Director of the ASPE office here in Washington, and I'm truly delighted to have as our very first guest on Washington Talks the Honourable Arthur Sinodinos, AO, the Australian Ambassador to the United States of America. Ambassador Sinodinos has had a remarkable career as a public servant, political advisor, banker, senator, and minister in Australia's national parliament, and now, of course, ambassador at what, by most measures, I think, would be considered Australia's most important diplomatic mission. Ambassador Sinodinos, welcome to Washington Talks.
1: Thanks, Mark. Great to be with you, and it's great to have Aspie in Washington. Uh,
0: Ambassador, you and I uh, both grew up and went to school around the same time in Newcastle, a city on the east coast of Australia, about 100 miles north of Sydney. I think it's fair to say that When we were growing up there, Newcastle was still very much a working-class town, a city built around the coal mines of the Hunter Valley, shipbuilding, heavy industry, and in particular, a major steelworks in the city. I don't know about you, but certainly when I was growing up, it would have been difficult for me to imagine that one day I'd finish up living and working in Washington, D.C. Can you get us underway today just by describing a little of the beginnings of your journey from that working-class industrial city that was Newcastle Becoming the Australian ambassador here in Washington.
1: Oh, thanks, Mark. Well, my parents were of Greek background, immigrants. Uh, my father was a merchant mariner. He ended up here at the end of the war. I came across his papers a few years ago, so he actually got here um, legally because I thought at one stage <laughs> he might have jumped ship. Uh, and my mother came out in the early uh, 50s. Because he was a merchant mariner, he was based in Newcastle. In those days, as you say, major, well, still a major port, but in those days, a lot of the bulk ships that took iron ore and coal around the coast. So, yeah, I grew up in an industrial environment, but very close to the beach in both Newcastle East and then Hamilton South. And so um, I guess I saw my childhood as, looking back, as pretty lucky. Mm. The sun, the surf, playing rugby league at school. Um, I'm still very much a rugby league uh, person. St George's is my club because I grew up in that era when... We can forgive that, Arthur. <laughs> Thanks, mate. When, when they were uh, winning premiership after premiership. Um, and, yeah, it was a working-class environment, but uh, uh, I was strongly influenced, uh, particularly by my mother, who was quite strongly anti-communist. She'd been through the civil wars in Greece after the war, and uh, that left an indelible impression on her. So I grew up in a sort of Cold War environment, uh, and that influenced my politics I think mm. uh, and and made me more disposed to the right of centre in that sense. But having grown up in Newcastle I sort of um, I did develop I, I think uh, an appreciation of the underdog because yep. uh, this was a town which could be hard scrabble in a lot of ways and so I appreciated the fact that Australia had a social safety net. that We weren't quite the American model and not the European model. We sort of what some people describe as the Australian way. It is very
0: interesting that growing up, as, as you say, in a, w- a very much hard scrabble working class town like Newcastle, a, a, a father who was involved in uh, the union
1: movement yeah. and. Well, the, the Siemens Union was one of the most left unions around. He himself wasn't very m- much on the left, he was a lot more politically neutral. My mother was mm. more strongly on the right, as, mm. I, as I mentioned before. Mm. Was politics
0: a big part of growing up in your family? Was it around the dinner table? or
1: When I I was growing up, I was really interested in politics and current affairs. I don't know where it came from. I mean, we used to discuss it, but it was something that just seemed... I I mean, I liked speaking. Sometimes when I was a little kid, I'd get up on a chair and start giving them a talk at dinner time on something or other. It must have been really boring for them, but I I found that... um, I just had this interest in politics and current affairs from a very young age mm. and your uh, shift if you like towards the conservative side of politics you
0: sat as a senator of course yeah. on the conservative uh, benches in the Australian parliament how did that go down at home or was it uh...
1: well by the time that had happened my parents had passed oh, away I'm sorry. Yeah. but I think like a lot of immigrant parents they were proud that their kids had gone to yeah. university first in the family to go to university that sort of thing so from their point of view doing something professional were seen as a mark of success for them.
0: Yeah, very much. Newcastle that I remember was a multicultural town before the word multicultural had really entered the Australian lexicon.
1: Yeah, and I think from my point of view we just saw it working on the ground. Yeah. As you say. Um, Ambassador, you've experienced
0: government and public policy making in at least three different ways as an insider, if you like, as a public servant, uh, as a political advisor and staffer, and then as a senator. What did each of those layers of experience teach you about the way governments operate and how public policy goes from being a good idea to being a practical reality? Well, well, I
1: think I was very lucky to have been a public servant and to understand how the public service works. Because then when I graduated to sort of doing advising, um, A, I had respect for what the public service could bring to the table and an understanding that, that these were complementary roles. Um, in the Howard office, we had the the uh, practice that uh, the advice from the department would go to the Prime Minister. We wouldn't hold it up unless there was some particular problem that had been identified with that advice. Uh, but on top, we'd have a system of blues where advisors in the office would put their comments. So the Prime Minister would see what the public service was saying and then what the advisors in the office were saying. And the idea of that was... For advisers to add value by may, maybe providing more context, providing political input, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the idea was, from that sort of melding of experience, the idea that these were complementary roles, not competing, uh, and, and not meant to cut each other out. Uh, and, and John Howard himself, I know there was early on that neither the long knives with the six secretaries who who were terminated, but um, over time he became a lot more comfortable with and trusting with his senior public servants, and I think they reciprocated. My view was always, if you trust people, bring them into the the fold. If you give them information, if you help them understand what they're contributing to, it's part of a bigger picture, you'll get a lot out of people. That's what motivates people. So when I was chief of staff, my philosophy was to have an open-door policy with Mm. people in the office, with backbenchers, frontbenchers, public servants... And the idea of that was to share as much information as possible in the circumstances, and I found that got the best out of people.
0: You also had experience in the private sector. You were no. a banker for a number of years. Um, did your time in the private sector change your views on how government operates in practice? Does it look very different when you step outside government and look back well, in? Well,
1: it, it's a paradox because I found that the public sector sometimes can have as much bureaucracy as the public sector, depending on which size of organisation you're in mm. um, but the other thing it taught me though is that often there's innovation going on off-the-shelf solutions that government should be uh, apprised of and be open to rather than thinking that everything's got to be invented here mm. in the public sector and i find with innovation in particular now in areas like defence there's a lot more understanding that adapting solutions from the private sector to emerging problems is probably the most cost effective way to go and that's getting a huge test run in the way we're dealing with Ukraine mm-hmm. where you know there's been a lot of uh, improvisation in terms of uh, equipment being provided and a lot of sort of uh, learning on the job but it's actually demonstrated that you can bring a lot of capabilities to the table quickly if you're prepared to think creatively mm-hmm. Coming
0: to your, your current role here in Washington, you've led the Australian mission here in Washington through a series of quite extraordinary events. The pandemic, of course, a change of administration here that was marked by division and controversy, uh, the announcement of the AUKUS agreement. When you do finish up your time as ambassador here, what do you think will be the, n- the number one memory of your time here that you'll take with you back to Australia?
1: It reinforced in my mind that in America they paint, with bold colours and on a very big canvas. The stakes are very high. They play for keeps, whether it's in politics, in business or whatever. So what I took away, I guess, was uh, a renewed appreciation of how dynamic this place really is and the opportunities it provides. And that's why I encourage a lot of Australian businesses to try their arm here, Mm. you know, try, try their to get into the market. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an old song, you know, if you make it here, you make it anywhere. <laughs> I, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, that's one thing I take away. One other thing I take away is um, having been involved in the AUKUS project from pretty early on, something that, you know, people like Michelle Flournoy here have described as a strategic masterstroke. In a professional sense, I got a lot out of that. Mm-hmm. And also in a, the other professional sense... Having had this immersion in defence and security for the last three years, understanding geoeconomics and geopolitics more than uh, I had in the past, it's been a great learning experience for me. So, for someone who came at this with a focus more on economics and social policy, uh, economics and business in particular, mm. this has been a great learning exercise.
0: The, the, I think we all accept as axiomatic that the Australia-U.S. alliance is built on solid foundations of shared responses to international crises and conflicts, of a largely congruent worldview, and, of course, shared liberal democratic values. Where do you think Australian and U.S. policy might diverge uh, or where it might not be easily reconciled?
1: Look, uh, there's a lot of overlap of interests and and values, as you say. Um, One area where we've... In the past, um, maybe taking a different tack is America's approach to trade agreements in recent times. We are very keen for them to re-enter or come into the Trans-Pacific Partnership for both strategic as well as economic reasons, uh, and also we're very keen to see the World Trade Organization work as effectively as possible. Areas like dispute settlement and all the rest of it, and the U.S. is now getting on onto that. They're talking about reform in that context, but that's been an area where market access in particular we've been very keen for the US to pursue Mm. as a way of entrenching its economic engagement in the Indo-Pacific region, because we believe that defence and security is one thing, but um, the economic engagement really, I think, is attractive to Mm. countries in the region, Mm. and the countries in the region are not, not looking to be asked to choose one side or the other but they want to have choice yes, to be able to exercise their sovereignty and having a player like the US in there, particularly on the economic side, very important. That's all uh, uh, true, of course, and, and getting the US engaged in
0: the international trading environment again is a critical, has been a missing piece of the puzzle. But there's no doubt that one of the most significant events during your time was the announcement of the AUKUS agreement, and in particular, the transfer of nuclear propulsion technology from the US Mm. to power the next generation of Australian submarines. Now, there's been considerable secrecy, understandably, around the program since the initial announcement. Uh, Can we expect announcements in March 2023, the 18-month mark, uh, that will detail publicly what submarines Australia will purchase and where they will be built?
1: Uh, I I think we can look forward in the first three or four months of next year, of more detail on Pillar 1, which is Mm -hmm. the submarines, uh, both in terms of the final pathway, if you like, as well as the interim capabilities building up to that, Uh, and also some more elaboration of Pillar 2, which is the advanced capabilities, which are also designed in part to accelerate capability development, capability uh, application in the field. Ben Wallace, when he was here, the... Uh, British Secretary of Defence gave a really eloquent, I thought, description of what those capabilities were meant to do when he was at the uh, AUKUS meeting with Richard Miles and uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin, and and he talked about the fact that it was really to accelerate getting capabilities into the hands of the warfighter so you can better anticipate what your adversaries will do, and better than they themselves (laughs) may well... uh, Anticipate. Um, so it was really about how you equip the warfighter mm-hmm. as quickly as possible, as completely as possible, drawing on the sort of technological strengths of the three countries in all of those areas where these foundational technologies, AI, machine learning, mm-hmm. quantum, cyber and the rest are really starting to develop.
0: The annual Osmin talks concluded uh, here in Washington recently, and um, those are the two plus two talks between Australia's foreign minister and defence minister and their US counterparts. How significant are those Osmin talks uh, for the alliance, and did the latest round of talks signal any change in direction for the alliance under the, I guess not so new anymore, Labor government in Australia?
1: Yeah, this year's uh, Osmin was all about operationalising the alliance. Uh, building on the force posture initiatives of the last few years. You know, we have the Marine Rotational Force, we have the Air Forces in Northern Australia. We're now looking at how we um, locate more supplies in Northern Australia, how do we develop repairs, maintenance, overhaul and sustainment capacities. So it was really about um, what is the next stage of development of these various uh, force posture initiatives. And when I say operationalising it, this really means, well, OK, we've done a lot at a certain level. How do we take it to the next level? Also this year, looking at trilateral cooperation, how do we include Japan in more exercises, in more uh, activity in northern Australia, et cetera, et cetera. So very productive. These, these annual talks are very important for Australia. The fact that you know, our defence and foreign ministers talk with their counterparts regularly once a year review progress to date, set the parameters for the future, very important. Uh, and uh, under the new government, uh, there's also been, I think, a, a focus on how do we expand out the areas of cooperation. So they will now incorporate an annual dialogue around development between USAID and our Minister for National Development in the Pacific. And also we're going to further develop the climate pillar of these discussions as it applies to national security Considerations. Uh, one of the sessions at OSMIN this year was about climate impacts, mm-hmm. the impact on exclusive economic zones of rising sea levels, economic refugees as a result of climate change, uh, and other impacts on on the region because of climate change and the implications for disposition of forces, and of course, of how our armed forces also complement what we're doing on climate change. Uh, more broadly. So that was quite a significant development and I'm hoping next year that is crowned with a leader-level agreement around climate. When the Prime Minister went to Tokyo after uh, being elected, he raised with the President and their bilateral the idea of a climate leader's agreement um, to make climate, uh, as he said, a third pillar of the alliance. So there's a lot of work going on on that.
0: Uh, Speaking of um, the importance of ministerial discussions, um, Australia's Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong, has just met her Chinese counterpart, the first such ministerial meeting uh, for over four years. Even during times when the Australia-China diplomatic relationship is experiencing difficulties, are you able to continue a dialogue with your counterpart here in Washington?
1: Um, That dialogue's been a lot easier since... um at the ministerial and prime ministerial level, there's been talks going on, Right. I found. Yeah. Um, prior to that, it <coughs> pardon me, it was more difficult. Mm. Um, but my counterpart here, who may well be going on to a senior job in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I found uh, pretty friendly more <laughs> recently, uh, and, and that's fine. And, and can I say on the talks in Beijing, what's important about them is they happened. They've broken the ice. It's now paving the way for further dialogue. Where that dialogue goes, I mean, clearly at this stage, we don't know. But Churchill used to say, jaw-jaw is better than war-war. And I think the idea that we're expanding the dialogue, including trade ministers and all the rest of it, I think is good for the future. No one has any illusions about any of this. It's not as if we or the Chinese have suddenly um, thrown out our particular interests uh, or whatever. But I think taking the heat out of some of the rhetoric, trying to establish a basis for some rational discussion, which allows us to get messages through at senior levels about some of the issues that particularly concern us, not just trade, the treatment of particular prisoners and all the rest of it are very important. So um, I think for Penny Wong to finish the year like this was the cherry on the cake. (laughs) Look,
0: and finally... um the Australian government has only just announced uh, your successor as ambassador here, will be former Prime Minister, Dr Kevin Rudd. It's a tradition here in the US that an outgoing president leaves a personal letter for the incoming president to read on arrival at the Oval Office. Is that something incoming and outgoing ambassadors do? And and what would your one key piece of advice be for any incoming Australian ambassador here well, in
1: Washington? Well, um, uh, Joe Hockey left me a letter in the... Um, mm-hmm in the desk, mm. and that was very good of him, and it was good advice. Um, a key piece of advice, look, the relationship is in great shape, but there are some big challenges ahead, particularly betting down AUKUS and getting that implemented. That That's a particular challenge. Uh, I think also helping the US navigate the China challenge. Uh, all of these are major things, and, and so I think my advice to the incoming ambassador is um, obviously... They're the sort of things that will have to be prioritised. I think there are a lot of facets to the relationship. As an ambassador, you're like a you know a grasshopper. You jump from thing to thing, but there the particular priorities I think need to be bettered down. And Kevin, with his background, you know, prime minister, foreign minister, diplomat, all of that. The hard work he he did even during COVID to get himself a PhD on Xi Jinping's thought. I read his book, The Avoidable War, recently. Um, I thought you know uh, it was not just Great on some suggestions for the future, but actually a great resource on Chinese policy and Xi Jinping's thought. Um, I, I think he brings a lot of firepower to the job, and I think it'll be really exciting. And, uh, and look, I wish him well. Um, I'll try and help in whatever way I can, uh, but at the end of the day, it's his show um, but I think it'll be really exciting. It'll be a good time for you uh, ASPE guys in <laughs> Washington.
0: <laughs> I hope so. Uh, Ambassador Arthur Sinodinos, thank you so much for taking time to join us here on the inaugural Aspie Washington Talks podcast.
1: Thanks, mate. Always good to see you. Cheers. Hello, castrin.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to Washington Talks, a podcast from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C.